Okay, well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. If you'd like a title for today's message, it's called Behold Your Redeemer in His Holiness. Just last week, Brendan introduced this new series to us, this series that we call Behold Your Redeemer. And I just thought he did an outstanding job of really helping us see what the book of Isaiah really is all about. He gave us a wonderful helicopter view of the entire book, gave us a framework for the book, and then proceeded to help us see redemption defined, redemption required, and then redemption provided, and just gave us an overview of the book and how those things work in the context of the book of Isaiah. Well, today we plan to start to land that helicopter into certain parts of this book. We today find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 6, and really over this series, the next time, nine times, we're going to be landing in different parts of the book of Isaiah to give expositional messages on the character of God. Brendan pointed out last week that God the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, really is the central character of this book. It's, it's what the book is all about, the person and work of who God is and his majesty, and his splendor, and his wisdom, and his victory, and his greatness, so on and so forth. And we're going to helicopter in on different chapters. And today we're looking at chapter 6 so we can behold our Redeemer in his holiness. Now when I say holiness, what I mean is that sense, that truth in which God is transcendently set apart from us. That's what it really means to be holy. It means to be completely other, transcendently set apart in everything that he is and everything that he does. And we see it so clearly here in Isaiah chapter 6. You know, for me, this topic of holiness, this attribute of God, is something that's very personal and, and wonderful to me. You see, growing up, I had this idea that God was just this safe Mr. Nice Guy. And so he was like a Labrador dog. You know, he never growled at anybody. He was just a nice guy to have around the place. And he would sit in your house, sit in your life. And if you needed him for anything, you could rub your magic lamp and there he would be. And he appeared like Santa Claus and he'd be able to help you. And so my understanding of God was completely warped. I understood that he was good, but I had him as this just safe, nice guy that sat around my life and was there when I needed him. And then I read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. And quite literally, it changed my life. As I started to understand that God is indeed good, but he's not safe at all. He's a consuming fire. He is transcendently set apart from us in all that he does and all that he is. And as it says in Revelation, then who can stand before him? And today as we look then at holiness, it's my hope that we'd all be blown away afresh as we see God for who he really is. Not sometimes who we think he is, but who he really is as the Holy One of Israel. So let's look together at Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 1 through to 8, and then we're going to unpack them together. This is Isaiah's account of the circumstances of his call to ministry, his call to be a prophet of the Most High God. And in it, we just have such an incredible view of who God really is. Let's read together. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the fire. 
from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your perfect, inspired, inerrant word, we do so at a passage that literally blows our minds. And Lord, today, would we see you then for who you truly are, the Holy One of Israel, one who is truly set apart from us in all that you are. Lord, would we be sobered by this? Would we be affected to our very core as we see you and your transcendent majesty? Holy Spirit, would you be with us Would you quicken our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah sets the time frame for this divine encounter as taking place in the year, verse 1, that King Uzziah died. Now we know from chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah, that Uzziah hadn't actually died yet. It's clear that Isaiah became a prophet while he was still alive. But what we do know in this moment then, putting those two verses together, is that in this year, at this very moment, when Isaiah had this great vision, Uzziah was on his deathbed. And that was a hugely, hugely significant time for the nation of Israel. You see, Uzziah, King Uzziah, was without doubt one of the greatest kings of Israel. When we think of great kings of Israel, we often think about David and Solomon Josiah and Hezekiah and some of the names that instantly come to mind. But the truth is, if we were to study the history of Israel and the kingships in Israel, there's no doubt that King Uzziah would be numbered among these kings that were absolutely great. And we read about this king in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. There's no need to turn there, but let me tell you a bit about this king, because it's important that we understand who he really was. This is what the chronicler writes about him. It says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. He was king of the country, 52 years. Many people had never known any other king. He continues, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Well, for many years, King Uzziah did indeed seek the Lord. And as a nation, they did indeed, as Israel, completely and utterly prosper. Under King Uzziah's leadership, their nation started to restore themselves, the great army, and really brought the military power back to its prime. The number of the heads of the father's houses that we read about in 2 Chronicles 26, the number of the heads of the father's houses, the mighty men of war, number 2,600, and under their command, they started to boss around and fight around with an army of 307,500 men people that were able to make war at a moment's notice. And King Uzziah realized the importance of an army. And so he spent money on time and ensuring that all of these mighty men of war were kitted out appropriately with shields, with good armor, with spears, with swords, with all that they would need to fight. And even as he started to understand more about Jerusalem, started to make machines and engines, it actually talks about, that could fire out arrows and that could fire out spears to help protect them as a nation. Well, as a result of this leadership under God's prospering, they were victorious in battle as a nation time and time and time again. They beat the Philistines, which in America they call the Philistines. Don't know why. But they beat the Philistines. 
They took on various different countries and they smacked them as well. And in God's kindness, they expanded the territorial boundaries of Israel back to what it, back to what it was in the glory days of King David. And under Isaiah's leadership, he gave himself to building various public works in and around Israel that were consistently successful. He built towers in Jerusalem. He fortified the, the walls in Jerusalem. He did things that would protect this great city that everybody could retreat to if necessary. And in all the land, he started to put in cisterns, huge big cisterns that they built into the ground. But through his wisdom, these cisterns started to help agriculture to absolutely flourish. And so in all the land, they started to be super smart with their soil. They started to be super smart in what they were growing. And as a nation, they became very, very, very wealthy. Well, for 52 years, this king reigned. And for 52 years, this nation thrived. They were at peace. They had a powerful army. They were getting wealthy. All was going well to them. And yet in the closing quarter of King Uzziah's life, his kingship ended with a sad whimper. His kingship literally train wrecked. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 verse 16 that King Uzziah in his later years became proud. He was aware that he'd become strong. He was aware that he was doing a great job of leading. And he became proud and he became complacent. And the truth is, so did the people of God. Israel were wealthy. Israel were powerful. Israel were at peace. For 52 years, they had had it good and they knew it. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, they had become proud as a nation And they had stopped then giving themselves to pleasing the Lord. They were happy to go into the temple and do certain rituals and tip their hat to God. But as a nation, they had completely exchanged the creator for the created. They were happy to tip their hat to God the Most High. But in reality, their confidence was in men. Their confidence was in their king. Their confidence was in the might of their own army. Their confidence was in themselves for creating goods. They had exchanged their confidence in God for confidence in themselves and confidence in their king. And Isaiah was confident in himself. That crescendoed 42 years into his ministry when on one given day he ran into the temple of God, the temple that only the priests of the Levitical order could offer sacrifices in. This is always the way God had made it. And yet King Uzziah runs into the temple this day and he starts to want to offer incense towards the Lord. Something that only a priest could do. The priests go running in after him and say, you can't do this. You've never been able to do this. The Lord has set the Levites aside for this role of priesthood. Uzziah, you're not a priest. You must remove yourself from this. Uzziah shouted them down, said, how dare you? I'm the king. I can do as I will. And as he said those words, God struck him down with leprosy. As he stood there in the temple, leprosy broke out on his head. And for the remaining 10 years of his life, he was a leper. He was still the king, but he had to be the king from the privacy of his own home. He could no longer go out and just lead the armies as he did before. And yet the people throughout this 52-year reign idolized King Uzziah. They loved him. They were aware that what he had done for them, that through him they had prospered, they had power, they had peace. In Isaiah chapter 6 then, we find this great king dying on his deathbed. You see, for Israel, this is a massive transition in their history. For Israel, there is great uncertainty, anxiety in the air. 52 years they had had a king leading them in a certain way. Peace and power and wealth. But as he lay dying on his deathbed, everybody to a person was starting to wonder what's going to happen now. See, in these times, there wasn't any parliament. Whoever was king ruled the land. So what was the next king going to be like? Jotham. What was, how was he going to go? Would he continue to lead the nation in wealth and power or was something else going to happen? Were they still going to be able to provide food and do well as a country? Or were things changing? And also there had been a whisper in the air, which was a true whisper, that a new king had arrived in Assyria. 
And this guy was an imperialist. And this guy wanted to take over the world. And Israel were consistently vulnerable given their geographic nature. And so as their king, who they had put great confidence in, lay dying on his deathbed, there is uncertainty in the land. What's going to happen to us now? And it was this year of great uncertainty in this year that Isaiah went into the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And as he goes into the temple this day with Uzziah on his deathbed, he begins to worship the Lord, and yet he experiences more than he could ever have asked or imagined. Because as he goes into the temple this day, in the year that King Uzziah died, he didn't just worship the Lord, he, quote, verse 1, he saw the Lord. He saw the Adonai, which is the Hebrew word there, which is translated Hebrew. It literally means Sovereign one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Adonai. I saw the sovereign one. I saw the true king of Israel. In the year that our human king lay dying, I saw the true king of the nations. And what he goes on to say as he starts to describe what he saw should blow each and every one of us away. Because as this human king lay dying, the king that the whole nation had put their confidence in, God breaks into our world and gives Isaiah a vision of who's really in control, who really is the king of Israel. And he reveals himself time and time again as the Holy One, one who is set apart, one who is far greater than any king or queen that has ever lived. And there's three things then that I want to show you from this vision that he sees. Three things that God was breaking into Isaiah's life and in turn, I think, breaking into our lives too. Mind-blowing things. And here's the first. The Lord is totally set apart in his majesty. See, look with me at verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. As he steps into the temple that day to worship the Lord, the Lord gives him a vision of what this temple was always pointing to, namely the temple of the heavenly realms. His temple, where he is enthroned on high. And as soon as he glimpses the Lord, the sovereign one, the thing that becomes immediately obvious is there is a train of his robe that fills the temple. Now, this is amazing. So last year, Emma and I and the children went to the UK. And since we've moved here and emigrated here, we really want to make sure our kids realize that the UK is where they came from. And so as part of our trip, we took them to London and we took them to Windsor Castle. Now, Windsor Castle is where the queen actually lives. And it's, it's, it is quite an amazing place. I've never actually been in myself. It's a massive castle. Inside the castle, there's also a church and a palace. So it is a multi-purpose facility that has been the home of kings for nearly a thousand years. It's, it's, it's an epic place when you go. And so as you go through each room, you go through security to make sure you're not carrying any bombs or guns or anything like that. You go through all those different things and you start to enter into the rooms and your breath is immediately taken away. So you go in this one room and it's probably about three times the length of this room and there is a great banqueting table in the middle of it. And as you look up at the rafters, there are the shields of all the knights that have been the English knights over the years. And you're just overawed with, oh my goodness, this is the queen's banqueting table. This is where they have all the heads and states and kings come and stay and meal together. You go in other rooms and the whole room is just gold. I mean, literally everything that you see is, is made out of gold. And then you go into other rooms and you see gifts that the queen's been given over the years, just antiques and, and, and furniture and statues that just take your breath away, done by all the people that you've always heard of but never seen any of their stuff. And you just think, this is amazing. You go in another room and it's just filled with swords and shields from the medieval times. Whole room, and they're just all stacked up there. And you're just like, this is, this is amazing. And I'll never forget, as I went into one particular room, there was a TV on the side. And it was the TV showing Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. 
And as you watch this coronation thing, it, and as you're in her house, experiencing all of this, it, it does take your breath away. And you, you watch this movie play out in front of you. And one of the things that's obvious is her crown is, is huge. And she's walking with such poise and splendor and majesty. But one of the things that's obvious is she has a robe behind her, which is huge. There are pages that are actually helping her carry it. As she walks, the robe is out behind her and pages are helping her to actually manage this great robe. And when you see all the pictures of her coronation, she's actually on a chair on top of this robe because the robe is so huge that it goes down to the tables. If you look at King George and you Google him, her dad, he's also got a robe, a red robe that goes behind him and then it comes around him, around the whole family. It's a sign of power and splendor. But this tradition didn't start with the English kings and queens. This tradition started with the ancient world kings and queens. In this season, in this season of time, it was understood that the length of your robe equaled your supremacy. So depending on how large your robe was, this is what such a great king or queen you actually were. Well, I submit to you there has never been a greater robe than what we are experiencing and seeing here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Because Isaiah sees the king of kings, the great Adonai, and his robe fills the temple. That's incredible. His robe is so grand that wherever Isaiah looks, there it is. It comes down from his throne. It goes around the room. It goes up the walls. It's over all the furniture. Wherever he looks, this great robe is there. And this great robe screams to Isaiah of the absolute supremacy and majesty of the heavenly king. For in the year King Isaiah died, he saw a king that is high lifted up, whose robe filled the temple. Such is the majesty and splendor of who he really is. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. You know, these dudes were kind of pretty incredible things, don't you think? Three pairs of wings. What must that have been looking like? But Isaiah deliberately takes the time to give us some detail about the anatomical and anatomical structure of these angels. Their anatomy is important. The way they're actually set up as creatures is really important. And so he wants to communicate to us straight off. They had three pairs of wings. Why is that important? It's really important. See, whenever God makes something by his grace and for his glory, he equips them for the environment that they're going to be in. That's what he always does. And so he makes birds. And what does he give them? Well, he gives them feathers. He gives them light bones. He gives them wings. Why? Because they're inhabiting the air. And so they're going to need to get around. So he makes them like that. He makes fish with scales and fins and gills. Why? Because they're going to inhabit the water. And so they're going to need all those things, otherwise they won't be able to survive in the inhabitation that God has given them. So it is with the seraphim. For they have been made by the exalted Christ for the inner sanctum of heaven itself. Where the unveiled glory of God would be blazing every minute of every day of their entire lives. And so he gives them and makes them accordingly with three pairs of wings. With one pair of wings they fly. It says there in that verse that they were standing just above him. This great king. That's what always servants did. It's not a sign of superiority, but servants would always stand just above the king. Why? Because they understood that he is the chief and the commander. And if he wants to command us somewhere to go, we're going. So we're close to him so he can send us. Well, the angels are there. And they'll be given two pairs of wings so they can fly, so they can stand above him and then await his instruction and go with immediacy wherever they need to go under the instruction and commanding of the great king. With two wings, they then cover their feet. Why is that? Well, biblically defined, our feet, a creature's feet, were a sign of our creatureliness. And so they needed wings to cover those feet. 
Because they're standing before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're standing before the unveiled, blazing glory of the Lord. And two other wings then he gives them so that they may cover their faces. They are standing all of their lives in the unveiled, blazing glory of God. And God knows the only way you will survive that, that nuclear explosion that comes from him all day and all night, is to give you wings that you can cover your faces with to survive before him. In Exodus chapter 33, there's a situation with Moses, isn't there? And Moses cries out to God, Lord, I just want to see you. I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. I've seen you do loads of stuff. I've seen you part the sea. That was, that was great. I love that. I've seen the plagues. That was amazing. I've seen the Passover. You are almighty God. Lord, please let me see you. And God makes it clear to Moses, Moses, I can't do that because no one sees me and lives. I can't just unveil my glory before you. And so God in his grace, though, and in almost trying to humor Moses, says, you know what, sunshine, I'll show you not my face, but I'll show you my back. I will hide you in a cleft in the rock. And as I pass by, I will cover your face as I pass by. But as I am just leaving, I will pull my hand away and I will hide you in the cleft and you will see just my back. That's exactly what God does. He passes by Moses. He covers his face. And as God passes by in all of his glory and all of his might, Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock and he just catches a sight of God's back. And when he comes down from the mountain that day, the people of God are absolutely horrified because Moses' face is shining. They make him put a veil over his face because they're aware, what is this? What has happened to you? Well, he's seen the glory of the Lord, but not the glory of the Lord's face. Just the glory of the Lord's back as it fades into the distance. And his face is shining. His face is glowing. Well, these seraphim... It can also be translated as burning ones. They themselves, burning white hot in everything they are, have been given wings by the Lord so that they can cover their eyes. Because they're not looking at his back. They're looking at his eminence and his glory. And God knows, although you are sinless creatures, given my blazing glory, you're going to need these to cover your face. It's the only way you'll survive. It's the only way you will have eyes to see anything. And as they stand above him then, they sing a song. Verse 3, this is what one of them says. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, there's something in that statement that we can read and reread and yet never realize its significance or its point. See, in the English language, when we really want to emphasize something, when we really want to help people see that there is an intensity in something we say, we can raise our voices in the way we write. We could put it in bold. We could underline it. We could put it in italics. You could put exclamation marks and then two exclamation marks and three and four and five, six. You can just put it in bold. You can do all these things. And in the Hebrew language, you can do some of those things as well. But the most common thing to do if you really wanted to make a point in the Hebrew language was to repeat something twice. And so you'd say, truly, truly, I say to you. The point was, you know, I really want you to get this. So truly, truly, I say to you. In some ways, the scripture says amen and amen. And you think we haven't even said anything yet. But the point is, I really want you to realize that this is important. One part in the Old Testament, it actually says the word pit, pit twice. And it doesn't translate that, translate that way in our Bibles because it's kind of weird. But that's the way it's written. And what they're basically saying is this wasn't just a pit. This is a pit pit. Because the whole point is you need to understand this thing is an epic pit. Well, this is the only time, the only time in, in the Old Testament that something is repeated three times for emphasis. This is known as the trisagion, a word that is repeated three times, not just for emphasis, but for superlative emphasis. The only time it happens in the Old Testament. And what do they say? Not love, love, love. Not mercy, mercy, mercy. 
Not great, great, great. But as they stand above the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, their words are holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Set apart, set apart, set apart is the Lord of hosts. This is their cry. They're aware as they stand before him, covering their eyes as his, as his majesty and his glory emanates from who he is. Their cry as they stand above him is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is how incredible he is. This is how great he is. And as they cry out between themselves, verse 4, this is what happens. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And as these angels cried out to one another, as they sang the great Trisagion to each other, as they cried out in the temple, declaring the Lord to be holy, holy, holy. The very thresholds of the temple that they are in began to shake. This is the power of these holy ones. This is the power of these seraphim. This is the power of these angels. You know, I remember when I was a kid, when I was at secondary school, growing up in Lincolnshire, and Lincolnshire is completely flat. So there's no hills. We couldn't see any hills from our house. As far as you could see, it was just like living on the sea because it was just, just completely flat. You couldn't see any hills in the distance at all. And one of the things that then happens in Lincolnshire is most of the English um, RAF bases are right there because it's so flat. You don't have any hills to avoid. So, so what you'd find is the fighter jets would practice. And I remember one time at school hearing these fighter jets coming in the distance. And I, I, I loved it because I, I wanted to be in the RF when I was a kid, like everybody else who grew up where I, where I was. And I remember these fighter jets starting to hear them in the distance. And then as they came over our school, all we heard was the sonic boom going off. It just went boom. And all of the window panes began to rattle. You could feel your chair actually vibrating underneath you. The alarm started going off in the school. They evacuated us from the school. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, what on earth was that? It sounded like a bomb had gone off in the school. It sounded like they had dropped a bomb on us. This thing was epically loud. Well, these angels... These burning ones, as they cry out to one another, holy, 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 it is as if sonic booms are going off in the room. The very temple is quaking and shaking under the noise of their voice. As these great ones cry out as to who God is, the very temple begins to shake. The seraphims are great ones. But back to the point before, Even these beings that set off sonic booms as they cry out as the holiness of God are there standing before him with their wings covering their faces because they're aware they're nothing compared to him. This is the great one of Israel. This is the Adonai. This is the sovereign king of all. My friends, the Lord is totally set apart in his majesty, isn't he? Behold him. This is who he really is. Is he really just a Labrador we put in the corner and then we'll let you know when we need you? I think not. The Holy One of Israel is set apart from us in his majesty and his splendor and his worthiness and glory. Even the seraphim as they burn cover their faces before this great king. But that's not all we see. Number two, the Lord is totally set apart in his purity. See, I submit to you in this moment as the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and the temple is beginning to shake all around them. The temple is not the only thing shaking in this moment. I submit to you, nobody is shaking more than Isaiah himself. He's quaking before the Lord. And you hear it in his tone and what he says. Look at what he says in verse 5. In response to all that he's seen about the Holy One of Israel. He says, and I said, woe is me. For I am 
lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, in Old Testament times, the prophets would announce two different types of messages or oracles, as they'd often be known as, two specific oracles. And whoever they were talking to, there'd be two different types. One type would be an oracle of blessing. And so whenever they gave those different oracles, they would often refrain it with the idea of blessed are. And so as they're talking to a people or talking to the nation or talking to a king or whoever it be, the premise is blessed are. So as I communicate this, I want you to know you will find blessing in this. And this is a message that God has given me for you, blessed are. The other type of oracle was the oracle of doom. And they would always tend to begin, woe is or woe are. Woe are you if you do this. Israel, if you respond in this way, then woe are you, doomed are you. God wants you to know you are doomed if you pursue this. Well, it is that background, I think, that helps us understand what exactly is going on here. And it makes the cry, I think, incredibly astonishing and extraordinary. Because here is one of the only times, I think it may even be the only time, but I'm not absolutely sure on that. But it's certainly one of the only times you see a prophet of God doing something that would be outrageous. As he pronounces an oracle of doom on himself. Because as he stands before the Lord in that moment, the great Adonai, the great sovereign one, the first words out of his mouth as a prophet of God is, Woe is me! In light of all that I see, Lord, woe is me. For surely I'm doomed. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. and I say things that I shouldn't say. And I live amongst the people, Lord, of, of people that are unclean lips as well. Lord, we're, we're doomed before you. But right now, as I see you, then surely woe is, woe is me. I'm surely doomed. You know, I think his response would be similar, if not the same, as to what every one of us in this room would have said had we encountered God in that moment. So A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this about the holiness of God, the holiness that Isaiah encountered in that moment. He says, we cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. Because holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. No. God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. My friends, God is completely set apart from us in his purity. He's completely set apart from sin. And so as Isaiah engages with the Holy One of Israel in this moment, his first words is, woe is me, because he's aware, you are pure and I am not. And this idea of holiness, it's not just, well, you know, I had a really nice grandma and I think he's probably like a hundred times like that. Oh no, he dwells in unapproachable light. He is completely pure in every way. And as Isaiah stands before him then, his simple response is, woe is me. As he sprawled in his book, The Holiness of God, says this about this moment. He says, if ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He was a whole man, together type of fellow, He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. But then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. And in a brief second, he was exposed, made naked before the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. 
Our friends, as Isaiah engaged in that moment with the Holy One of Israel, he wanted the temple to collapse around him, to cover him in his sinfulness. He was aware you are above and beyond me in every way in your majesty. And you are set apart in your purity. Submit to you most likely by now, Isaiah would have been on his face before the Lord, unable to continue to look amazed at who he is in his purity. But the Holy One of Israel hasn't finished with Isaiah. And he goes on to show him then, number three, that the Lord is totally set apart in his love. Look with me at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. My friends, as Isaiah trembled before the Lord, looking to a place to probably hide and most likely praying that somehow the roof of the temple may cave in over him or the ground may open up before him so he can climb in. Finding ways of how can I remove myself from this insane brightness and purity. The Lord God, the Lord of hosts, commands one of his seraphim to help restore this prophet and cleanse him. So this angelic creature takes flight and he goes over to the altar and using tongues, this burning one picks up a burning coal and flies over to Isaiah and picks him up from the ground and touches his lips with this burning white hot coal. And as he does this, he says, you know what? In this moment, you're cleansed. For your guilt is taken away. And your sin, Isaiah, is atoned for. My friends, I submit to you that herein is love. Because herein is a prophetic pointer to Calvary. See, here in this moment, in 743 B.C., God sends his flaming one, his seraphim, to Isaiah with a burning white coal to help cleanse him. And yet it would be 743 years later that God would send not a seraphim for Isaiah, but God would indeed send his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. The mission that that red hot coal from the altar always pointed to. See, in the year that King Uzziah died, the nation of Israel was indeed in great uncertainty and fear of what was going to happen next. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of the great Adonai, the great King of Kings, the Holy One of Israel. But also in the year that King Uzziah died, just over the other side of the Mediterranean, Two brothers, Romulus and Remus, established a village called Rome. Rome was birthed as a village. That village became a town. That town became a city. That city became a nation. That nation became a superpower that quite literally took over the known world. That superpower would create roads and language that when the time was right would allow the gospel to go forward. And that superpower, when the time was right, brought in a form of execution that no one had seen or imagined before. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read, Cursed is a man that hangs on a tree. But no one would hang on a tree in that time. That wasn't a form of the way people died. But the Romans brought in a principle that for the worst criminals of all, we will hang them on a tree. We will crucify them. And 743 years after this vision, God the Father sends God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He's born through the Virgin Mary. He lives a perfect life. And at the age of 33 years old, cursed is the man who dies on a tree. 
Jesus Christ in his purity died on a cross in that moment, declaring for all that all who put their faith in me as Lord and Savior will have life. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you. I will justify you. For God's holiness must be quenched. He cannot just turn a blind eye to it if it's no big deal. It must be punished for. But Jesus Christ came on the greatest rescue mission ever told, declaring that I will take the punishment for you. 743 years on from this moment, God, when the time was right, sent forth his son. But in the book of Isaiah, he hadn't come yet. So the seraphim takes a burning coal and touches it on Isaiah's lips and says, you know what? Your sin is now cleansed and atoned for. It was always pointing to Jesus. It was always pointing to his work. The altar would always be a place all the way through the Old Testament where sacrifices would be given. And through the sacrifice, you would be made right with God. But it's clear from the New Testament that it was never enough. You'd have to keep sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing and it would never be enough. And Jesus Christ rocks up and says, I am the one and only sacrifice you will ever need. All of these always pointed to my arrival. And so as the angel takes that coal in this moment and touches Isaiah's lips, taken from the altar, it points to Jesus Christ. And that's why I think here in Isaiah verses 6 through 7, Chapter 6, we can honestly say, herein is love. Because it's a pointer to God sending his only begotten son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. My friends, I want to encourage you then. Behold your God. This is who he is. This is who he is in his holiness. He's set apart in his majesty and his splendor. For the robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. He is high and lifted up for even the great burning ones have to cover their eyes as they declare to him, holy, holy, holy are you. He set apart from us in his purity. Isaiah, a man of upstanding, stands before him and goes, woe is me as he calls down the judgment of God on himself, being aware, surely I'm undone. I'm ruined in this moment. And yet he's also set apart in his love. Because he's initiating holy God that says, you know what? I know you're cut off from me. So for you, Isaiah, in this moment, I'm going to send a seraphim. But ultimately that just points to one greater. Because for all of you, I'm going to send my son. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you then, maybe today is a good day to get saved. God in his grace has provided this moment for you. This image from Isaiah 6 is who he really is. Yes, he's good, but he is not safe. He's the Holy One of Israel that demands perfection. To spend time with him, we have to be perfect, but we are not. And so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, and says, you know what? If you will put your faith in my son, my only begotten son is your Lord and Savior. I'll give you life and that in abundance. I will cleanse you in this moment. I will purify you. His perfect life will be transferred to your life and your sin and filth will be transferred to his life and he will take your punishment on the cross. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, talk to the person who brought you today. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to somebody you're sitting next to. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. But here's the point. If you put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior in this moment, you're saved. Even if you were to die in this moment and stand before the Holy One of Israel, you would have nothing to fear. Because in that moment, the Bible tells us, as you stand before him as a Christian, each one will receive his commendation from God. And what a moment that would be. You go from object of wrath to object of his affection, object of his purity, clothed in the purity of his son. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we finish out today, I, 
I urge you, just quietly in your mind, cry out to God and make it clear to him, Lord, I repent of my sin. And I put my faith in you as Lord and Savior. My friends, if you are here though today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a believer, which is many of you, I want to encourage you, guard your hearts by the grace of God. Guard your hearts from domesticating God. Guard your hearts from having him as just a part of your life that fits in when you've got time. Instead, let him take central place. The Holy One of Israel, high and lifted up in the throne room of your life and live in light of him because he is indeed good, but he's not safe because he's the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, your word is is incredible. And Lord, in this Isaiah 6, we see a God, we see you, and are sobered and compelled and overwhelmed. Lord, would you forgive us for times when we do domesticate you? Would you forgive us for times when we approach you almost flippantly? where we treat you just like somebody else that we might want to talk to about things as and where we've got time. Lord, did you forgive me for times when I, without doubt, lived as if, yeah, you're just another guy. Lord, would you help us by your grace to lift you up to where you belong as the Holy One of Israel in our lives, high and lifted up, high and lifted up with your robe filling our temples. Lord, you are morally pure. You are lovely. You are overwhelming. And as we behold you then, would we live in light of you? And would all glory go to you.